talking about dignity. That actually design, true design equates to dignity at its most fundamental level, and we all deserve dignity. Other ideas of taste and aesthetics, of course, that's part of it, but that's, to me, that's the subset. The, the core issue is how do we bring dignity to every human being on this planet? Welcome back to Design Lab. I'm Bon Koo. For those who listen every week, thank you. And you may have noticed that we have brand new theme music. It's created by Emmanuel Houston, and you're going to get a special treat this week because you're going to hear from Emmanuel after my interview with today's guest, who is Mokena Makeka. He is a man of many talents. He's an architect, artist, curator, designer, scholar, urbanist, and visionary. He lives in South Africa and studied architecture there at the University of Cape Town. He's an adjunct professor at Cooper Union in New York and at Carleton University in Canada. In 2005, he was a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, and he's an Aspen Fellow in Leadership. McKenna is at the forefront of thinking on contemporary inclusive African cities. He is currently a principal at Dahlberg Advisors. He's also the founder of the House of Makeka, a premium lifestyle suite of design and product experiences. He has won international awards with his urban planning firm, Makeka Design Lab slash Works. We talk about design as a human right, how hip-hop culture informs McKenna's architectural philosophy, and how you can understand people through the environments they create. McKenna, welcome to Design Lab. So happy that you're here. Very happy to be here. Greetings to all the listeners out there. And for the listeners, where are you currently located and what time is it? I'm currently located in Cape Town, South Africa. The time is eight minutes past uh, six o'clock in the evening. It's wonderful weather. We're about to get into autumn in about a month's time. So mm. the sun is still high and the, the, the beaches are still warm. Oh, I've, I have not visited, but it's one of those places that are on my top 10 list of in the world I want to visit. So after this pandemic, I hope to make a trip to see you, man. <laughs> Well, you should you should come through. I mean, it, you know what's what's interesting about Cape Town is it's both beautiful and, and ugly, because it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So you you get to see that sort of stark you know, economic inequality, and at the same time, it's extremely beautiful from an environmental perspective, and has mm. extremely beautiful people. You know, so you almost get the whole world in one here. I mean, yeah, you see everything. so exciting. I want to start off with this question: Can you talk to me about your design journey? Did you always want to become a designer when you were a kid? I read somewhere that at one point you wanted to be an astronaut at one point. So tell me, <laughs> you tell think, me you've more. You've been digging in the crates if you found that story. <laughs> I, I have it. I have it. <laughs> um, yeah. Geez. So, so where, where can I start? I think there may be four parts to the story to, 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 to get me to this point. The first one was, I think I was like seven years old and I drew a Lamborghini in 3D but I didn't know it was 3D. So my teacher was like, how did you do this? But I just said, if you look at it from here, you'll see this and that. You know, most kids draw uh, in 2D, you know, mm -hmm. front and back. But I didn't know I was drawing in 3D. So that was the first time that people gathered around my drawing, like, you know, what is, you know, what mm -hmm. is this? And then I wanted to become an astronaut. I was growing up in the United States. I had my dreams crushed by a very regressive teacher who basically said, there'll never be an African in space. So that dream kind of tapered off quite quickly. <laughs> and I was too young to rebut it, right? I didn't have oh. the, the tools for the instrument. A teacher tells you 
He'll never be an African in space. Like, oh, okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> On to the next. Oh. So, <laughs> so I used to draw quite a bit. Loved my Transformers and Robotech. You know, so I was always drawing. Um, started my own comic book when I was like 10 years old. But again, I didn't know what was design. I just mm. liked to draw. And in high school, I decided that I'd go and become an electromechanical engineer because that was the closest thing to being an astronaut because that mm. allows you to, to design airplanes and so on. And I actually had a scholarship to study in the U.S. But the way that things work in Lesotho is that the country sponsors you if you're admitted into a course. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, and this is like pretty tragic, at the time, the... the you know, my, my father used to serve in government and mm-hmm. inadvertently in small countries, you sometimes attract enemies from nowhere. So mm-hmm. when I was submitting my forms showing this is where I've been accepted to go and study aeronautical engineering and, you know, basically it should be a done deal. They then said, no, we're not going to allow you to go to the U.S. You have to pick a different what? country. So I was like, oh yeah, gosh. but I've already been admitted. There's not much time. They're like, no, you have to pick a university in the Commonwealth. And there wasn't much time left. So I rush and I apply to a couple of places in the UK. I come back a week later. Again, you're accepted. Please come and study engineering. Then I said, no, no, actually, we didn't really mean the Commonwealth. We, we actually meant Southern Africa. So, oh, wow. And then I was like, oh, snap. And then all of a sudden from there, there's no aeronautical engineering in Southern Africa, at least at the time. Hmm. Uh, there was electromechanical engineering at, at the University of Cape Town. So I applied for that and I was admitted. So I steadily had all of my dreams crushed all the way. (laughs) And then I was doing I was doing engineering and realized that I really didn't like it. I, you know, in in all the engineering projects, I was the one doing the concept for the robot, the concept where to make a flying bird. And I would tell the other team to sort out the calculations about gears and so on. And then I, and I realized that's kind of more my space. I was more the visionary in the team. I, I wasn't a mathematician in the team. And then I pivoted and became just kind of out of luck, sheer luck. I stumbled upon architecture and mm. I was actually dared to do it. So that's another weird story. And then <laughs> I, I took up the dare <laughs> and I became an architect. And there I actually found design because there I was like, mm. okay, now this makes sense because it's the pragmatic as well as the imaginary, you know, it's poetic as well as mathematical. And it was the first time I found both sides of my brain mm. were being used. Cause I used to be, I was very frustrated up until then where I could be very mathematical or very artistic, but I could never combine the two. Mm. There were very strong silos. And it's only in design where I found that, you know, I could calculate the forces of a truss and look at a painting and be excited about, what my building would look like at a purely aesthetic level. So mm. my, my life is entirely a series of doors being shut in my face and cul-de-sacs and turn back and no, you don't belong here. And <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. And I, I kind of landed on my feet every time. So it's no, it's never been a linear, you know, like that story of I was five years old and I wanted to be an architect. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I, I was completely befuddled by the universe around me. Mm. I just bumped my head into many, many doors. That's simply the truth of it. And I want to pause because your upbringing is globetrotting everywhere. So correct me if I'm wrong. So you were born in South Africa, raised in the country of Lesotho, and then you went to New York and then went back to South Africa. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of um, up and down. So 
So my father was the ambassador for Lesotho to the United States. And uh, and, wh- and where uh, is Lesotho? Can you describe that oh, country? Because so, I think so most Lesotho, of our audience doesn't know, don't know. Oh, about yeah. Lesotho. So, yeah. Lesotho is a sovereign state that is entirely surrounded by another country. The only other country that probably has a similar status is the Vatican, but even the Vatican doesn't have the same rights as a full-on sovereign Mm -hmm. state. It is this way because Lesotho is older than South Africa. So so South Africa was formed around Lesotho. And yeah, so my, my father was ambassador to the U.S. and Mexico at one point and then to the U.N. So we were always bouncing between staying in New York and staying in D.C. And came back to do high school in Lesotho. And then after that, came to South Africa to study, as per the story I told you, where just like weird convoluted circles. So yeah, lots of globetrotting, always on the move. At one point, you know, when I was young, I hadn't stayed at one school for more than two years. Learned how to make friends quickly, learned how to deal with loss quickly. You know, not too much attachment to things, but also like living in the moment. So Mm -hmm. you bump your head and something's going to happen. So very fluid, but I don't want to say unstable because that's not the same thing. Yep. Stable, but stable, but fluid. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to see if you can thread your upbringing and being in all these different environments to your perspective and work as a designer. Does, is there a correlation yeah. there or is there an influence? There's an absolute correlation, absolute correlation. I think, you know, so some of my earliest memories, oddly enough, are architectural. I, I, I still remember being mm-hmm. in the cupola of one of the buildings in, in D.C. And as I said, my, my dad was in D.C. My younger brother was born in D.C. And the Lincoln Memorial is, is a space that I remember vividly as a child, as well as, you know, climbing on some of the, the statues there. Now, when I was a kid, I was not aware of these things. To me, they were just like large objects in interesting spaces. But then you fast forward to like, you know, you go to a different city, first of all, not even yeah. fast forward to architects, you go to a different city and you look at how monuments are erected and you can tell it's like, it's entirely different, different mm-hmm. color, different material, different scale, different sensibility. Then you go to another city, the streets are different. In Southern Africa, you know, we drive on the other side of the road. So, you know, everything, like, so, yeah. so what happens is you become your visual language is enhanced because you're consistently confronted by all these different sorts of things. Now, it, it took me a long while for me to grasp what was actually happening. It was only when I was designing mm. that I realized I actually had a pretty strong vocabulary that I could draw upon for a range of things. You know, I loved, I loved manga. I, I loved early hip hop. I loved that's that also came out from New York, you know, yeah. so growing up in New Rochelle and hanging out in Queens and everything, whole hip hop culture and graffiti and the way color was used in form. And then when I was doing architecture, we went, there's a, there's a period called deconstruction. It's a period pretty much between the late seventies and, and the eighties when architects were basically deconstructing buildings, like mm-hmm. breaking down things to their primal forms. And I remember telling my, my teacher, I said, this is hip hop. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, hip hop de- deconstructs English language. It, it reassembles <sighs> words into different combinations. And this is what, this is what deconstruction is. And she didn't have any idea. She was like, whatever. So, but then every time I was designing my buildings, I thought of them as raps. And, but so it was like, if my words were bricks and if my words were columns, if my words were roofs, how would I disassemble and put them together again? And it worked out, you know, and I realized I probably would not have had that insight had I not been exposed to hip hop culture. And the the, the reverse also informed me, you know, growing up in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go to Lesotho, which is 
you know, probably the, I hate this term, poor country. It's one of the most unproductive yeah. terms you can yeah. use for anything. But let's just say that it's a an impoverished nation that's in dire need of resources. Mm -hmm. And you come there and, you know, a place that had no trees. I remember asking my father, why are there mm. no trees? He said, well, people cut down trees for firewood mm. to keep their homes warm, you know, and that's why there's no trees. So something as simple as just the environment and walking around and, and engaging at a distance, because I don't want to say that I, I grew up poor. I don't want to make any such claims. But being exposed to poverty, being exposed mm. to need, being exposed and then contrasting it with New York. And then all of a sudden you realize the inequity of the world. And then you start asking questions, right? Then you start mm. saying, but why is this city like this and like that one? And then it starts getting down to design. And that's when I start mm. as well, you know, design is politics. That structural inequality is often baked into our way of living, either by how resources are aggregated and, and, and kept and or rather how they you know not shared. Mm -hmm. So so all of that stuff fed into my thinking about design. In fact I would not be who I was if it wasn't for all of these eclectic mm -hmm. strange, you know, rebuttals, being told no for various reasons. Either I was black or I was African or I had the wrong surname, whatever. And then learning to kick the door down and saying, well, actually, I want to be in the room. And then sometimes getting kicked back out, right? It's not always yeah. a success story. It doesn't mean you kick the door down and it's all hunky-dory. Sometimes yeah. you get thrown right back out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know so, that feeling. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, yeah. But just to say to your point that I've tried to live in the world. In other words, to be aware of my surroundings all the mm. time, wherever I'm at. And because I've been in different places, it means that I can bring those perspectives to the conversation and I, I always try and have empathy. And I don't think you can be a good designer without empathy. You, you really need to imagine yourself in somebody else's shoes and then actually then design becomes quite easy. I think mm. <laughs> it's like- Oh, there's so much good stuff there. I just want to like pause and reflect. I, I, there's so many different jumping points that I want to go off of from what you said. And you have a whole design philosophy and I've heard you say that design is a human right and yeah can, i was one of the first to say that popular now yeah can, <laughs> yeah but no, but but can you i'm wondering can you can you expand on that statement for listeners who may not have heard it before what do you mean by that well i'll tell you where it came from so as a quasi scholar of history and and you look at the un charter and you know the rights of children etc and all the amazing work that was done in the early 1920s and obviously post-World War, like this real progressive movement around, around what are rights, you know? Mm. But it just struck me that we lived in a world that, that the law often spoke about rights in a very material way, but not so much in a qualitative way. So I was thinking, who's saying that if you're in a, a shanty town in Lagos or in a favela or in you know, or in Kibera in Kenya, who's actually saying you have a right to a well-designed environment. Hmm. Now, for me, that, that says two things. One is one is that design shouldn't be the preserve of the elite. So it's not as if everybody lives a particular way and then if you're very wealthy, you get a designer. Yep. And it's also because practically a lot of the things that are around us do exhibit good design. You know, a traffic light, the elegance of red that says stop and amber that says pause and mm. green that says go. It, it is a design right that almost anybody should be able to engage with a traffic light and not 
not know a language, but understand and be safe. So to me, design is about how do we make sure that every human being has a minimum level of, I don't know, quality of life. And, mm. and that means that we need to care about design. Also, it's political yeah. with a small p, which is to say we cannot live in an unequal world and think it's okay or that it's merely because person X is poor and person Y is, is, is wealthy, then it's okay. Like I have no problem with access to opulent architecture. If you want to buy the most expensive car and you want to live in a six-story mansion, I'm not talking about that level of design. I'm talking about yeah. dignity. That, mm. that actually design, true design equates to dignity at its most fundamental level, and we all deserve dignity. Other ideas of taste and aesthetics, of course, that's part of it, but that's to me, that's the subset. The yeah. core issue is how, how do we bring dignity to every human being on this planet, you know? And for example, let's talk about, you know, vaccine equity. There was this mm -hmm. ongoing debate about different um, countries having lack of access and others having more access to vaccine. One would say, well, is that an issue of design? I would say, yes, in a way, the, the mm -hmm. economy can be designed and you can design the policy that allows for equity to be put. Yes. So yes, it is a question of design. If one says there shall be dignity for all and access to, you know, access to vaccines for whatever, polio, uh, measles, rubella, COVID-19, to, to, to consciously make that happen is an act yeah. of design. Yeah. You know, what, what, yeah, 100%. There's a lot of parallels between health and healthcare that, health is a human right. I think most countries exactly. on this planet believes that except for the United States where I live, that we don't believe health is a human right. That's why insurance it, is linked to it's a your, commercial product. It is. <laughs> I'm well aware. You go to the U S and you switch on the TV and 30% of the advertisements are pharmaceuticals. You go to South Africa, Europe, it's maybe less than 2%, which shows wow. you the impact. Just, just watch advertising. Just the amount of advertising for medicine tells you it's a symptom of a perversely designed system where yeah. we do not believe that health is a human right. But yeah, most people don't realize health is designed. Healthcare delivery is designed. There's someone making those ethical decisions and building that framework around these principles and you 100%. get a poorly designed system. 100%. And uh, I, th I think the part of the problem is that people assume that design is always conscious. I actually think a lot of design is unconscious, but it doesn't mean it's not designed. What, so, what, what do you, yeah, what do you mean by that? So for example, there, there, there's high design, which is a sort of pedagogy and a sort of rigor to it and so on. But let's say you have, let's look at a housing policy for argument's yep. sake, right? Mm. And in this housing policy, for some economic reason, public space is taken out of the equation because it's seen as it's, you know, it's not, it's not generating a revenue. We need more apartments in those apartments over time, eventually become ghettos. Those ghettos eventually become places where because of lack of really, you know, progressive human interaction, people become unhealthy. Maybe they stay in their apartments the whole time. They're not walking out. Mm -hmm. So what, what I'm saying is in that case, there's a sort of subconscious or inadvertent design because they're designing out these possibilities yeah. and narrowing down to a very limited set of objectives. So I need X amount of units at it. So, so I think that when design excludes things, that's also an act of, of design. And that's why I'm, I'm yeah. a follower of complex thinking versus linear thinking. Linear thinking gives you, you know, quick results. You tick the box, you think you've achieved the objective, but there's so many things that you miss along the way. And I, and I actually think that that should be held accountable much as 
what I call subversive design, which mm-hmm. is things like apartheid or gerrymandering or or places where people are aggressively using design for negative reasons. Yeah. But but they both need to be a spotlight needs to be put on them. I'm I'm really tired of ignorance. Uh, being claimed as, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. No, you should yeah. know. Otherwise, you shouldn't be involved in the decision-making process. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I want to continue this thread and because in reading more about you, you have a fascination around cities and you talk about this role of architecture in the design of cities. And I'm wondering if you could share some examples of how you have seen bad design in the built environment contributing to social injustice or even like bad health outcomes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll start with probably one of the biggest thorns um, in, in, in the side of, let's say, post-1994 South Africa. And by the way, for the listeners, 1994 was the year of our liberation and our first election. So many of us can't that as our year of independence. And that's when you um, entered in university in 1995, exactly. correct? Same year, pretty much. Yeah, that was the year, my, my year of engineering. Very disruptive year. Lot, lots of protesting and not much studying. Wow. But, but that's a different <laughs> conversation. Uh, yeah, but so, so what happened was that we had what was called the Reconstruction and Development Program. And it was this very noble idea driven by the ANC, but I don't want to put it all at their foot. Let's say the whole country was behind this idea about, you know, you know, basically redesigning the economy because the apartheid government had basically bankrupted mm. the South African. It had been stripped, resources had been plundered. I mean, it was a total fascist and failed state. Now, in that rush to create housing for the people because of our legacy of dispossession, and I hate to say this, but I have to put it out there, Architects were not consulted in the strategy and the delivery of the first houses and housing for post-1994 South Africa. It was actually designed by engineers. Wow. And they, they put up these huge grids, endless grids, almost like a sci-fi movie of these small little units that were probably ranging between six and nine feet in two directions, these little cubes running all over mm. the place with no running water, often with no electricity. So they created... This, really, this was in Cape Town or all... Well, all in ma- many parts of the country, okay. many parts of the country. And, and, and it created huge social problems. So on the one hand, it was like, hey, we're giving you a house. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the politicians were genuine. They, they were just ignorant about design. You know, they couldn't draw a correlation between the environments they were creating and and the politics that they were hoping to achieve, that it's noble to say everybody should have a home, but there was very poor definition of what is a home and what is a house. Mm. So we created a whole series of very problematic, sterile environments. People were frustrated. I wouldn't call it rebellion because that sounds too, too dramatic, but I would definitely say a, a repudiation of that housing model. Government started to find it also couldn't afford to even provide those. And then they were under pressure to provide better quality housing. Then there was a debate about the location of housing, because at first they said, let's put people on land where it's cheap without realizing that sometimes cheap land is cheap because it's far away from resources, Mm. far away from public transport, far away from police stations, far away from clinics. So that's why it's cheap, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, and, and that's a prime example, sadly, of, of, the liberated government not understanding the power of design and creating negative environments. The government learned, eventually changed from the Ministry of Housing, to the Ministry of Human Settlements. Mm. So they started to click that, you know, it's not just about housing, it's about public space, it's about 
parks, it's about schools, and that housing can't be divorced from human settlements, right? Mm. So, so we have stark in many examples where what I'd call muddled muddled thinking that that is suspicious of the creative dimension and thinking that you know that basically you can design communities using a spreadsheet without even considering the humans who live in those communities. Exactly, exactly. So that that's a prime example of, and we're still fixing that now. We. At the same time, you know, South Africa is a huge success story in terms of getting people into the middle class. And we can debate if that's something to aspire to. But I think we moved 25% of of people who were in in dire circumstances into the middle class within a 10-year period. Wow. Fastest social engineering conversions on earth, faster than even China. So... There's also a lot to be proud of that we, we have the beginnings of a more equitable society. But, but yeah, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. For me, there is a direct correlation between cities, urbanization, politics, housing, and quality of life. And you asked about architecture. I mean, as I said, it's a human right. So I believe even if it's a small little unit, you know, care and empathy, the word I used before, like I always used to say to my students or to anyone, I said, Okay, is that your design? They say, yes. Is it, would you live there? No. Well, then it's not a good design. So mm. go start again. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, like don't other the, the recipient or the subject of, don't other them. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine yeah. crossing that street. Imagine being in that neighborhood. Yeah. And then you really shouldn't have a problem unless you're a, you're a masochistic. Then maybe we have some other issues to discuss. But yeah. <laughs> and, I've just been fascinated by the role that architecture can play in designing healthier communities because of these design decisions have long lasting impacts. If you build a bunch of houses in a neighborhood that's away from public transportation, that is near toxic dumps that happen a lot in our poorer communities in the U S and there's no access to green space, you have probably put that community at risk for having lower lifespans because you have designed in poorer elements of the social determinants of health and that you've almost kind of screwed up a community before that community even moves in by those designed intent. Completely, completely. I'll I'll give you an example of this. A friend of mine, an amazing professor, Mabel Wilson, who teaches at the Graduate School of GSAP in, in Columbia, and she shared a drawing with me just the other day where she showed uh, redlining maps, housing areas, and the almost perfect correlation between that and higher incidences of suffering due to COVID-19. This is kind of what I meant before about unconscious bias. I'm pretty sure when those gerrymandering maps were being produced and so on, and, and the redlining that was being put in place, that they did not anticipate there would be such a thing as COVID-19. Of course not. Yeah. But... There was, I would call it a subconscious segregation or separation yep. of opportunity in which you don't quite know the outcomes, but you do know if you do this and you put it this way, this has a higher likelihood of success and this one has a lesser likelihood of success. And to that extent, we as human beings can never fully grasp the full extent of those decisions. So yeah. to this day, the legacy of apartheid planning which goes back to 1913 and 1948, far exceeds, I imagine, the imagination of those urban planners. 
Mm. And that's that's what also worries me because to, to your point is that what we do, particularly in the built environment, echoes for generations. This isn't a fashion show where you change next season. It's not ephemeral. It's stone, it's mud, it's steel, it's wood. It sits in the ground and it endures. I mean, there's yeah. a reason why we, when we study civilizations, we look for their architecture. Because that's how you understand mm, people. You look yeah. at the environments that they create. That's fascinating. That's what lasts longest. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. how you project the future. The first thing you do is you describe the architecture of the future if you want to show the future. So not many people are aware of it, but it's like this spine that gives us ordering to civilization. We read buildings and then we kind of know where we're at. In Here in the U.S., Black Americans have been dying at two, even three times the rate yeah. of white Americans. Yeah. And you could probably follow the thread of structural racist policies and housing in the built environment and yeah. how that has contributed to that discrepancy of, of lifespans that we're seeing during COVID-19. This is a symptom of something that happened decades ago of, of racist yeah. policies influencing housing. And just because those policymakers may not be quote unquote racist, have interpersonal racism, but that there is decades of structural racism in our policies that have created these conditions for certain Americans, especially yeah. people of color to experience worse health outcomes. I, I completely agree. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we could talk for hours on this because there, there is, you know, you spoke about health. I also want to talk a little bit about mental health and well-being. Mm, yeah. Um, Tell me more. You know, the, the right to work, the right to the belief that the opportunities that are out there are actually real, the, the right to be able to make a living, all of these things contribute to, to psychological well-being. And unfortunately, we're still so young as a species, and I really use that term, young as a species, that we're only really beginning to learn the extent to which we are inter interconnected and the extent to which all of the wounds that we carry are not visible, right? So for a long time, we understand physical wounds. We can understand lynching, violence, being whipped, being shot, but we are only beginning to understand intergenerational violence around prejudice mm -hmm. and how that can diminish community sense of well-being or pride or energy. And that, and that can produce one of two things. One, it can, it can produce great anger. It can produce great productivity. It can produce great invention. I mean, there's a lot that people can do with, with these um, negative energies, but nonetheless, they are, they, they are sometimes outcomes of systemic pain that, 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 that needs to be addressed. So when I look at these environments, I don't just see them as like physical health issues. I, I think to myself, you know, what is it like to live here in a place where you're worried about walking outside because you might get shot? Yes, there's a physical fear, but your heart rate is probably pumping higher than <laughs> it should be even when you're at rest because, you know, you're on edge. What is it like to walk in a street and you see a police person and your heart is pumping harder than somebody else's because you've done nothing wrong, but you never mm. know what could yeah. happen to you. Mm. So, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm getting probably into the weeds on this issue, but just to say that I think we're in a beautiful space right now with all the tensions that we have around the world around these issues, but we're talking about them. Yeah. We're taking them seriously and we're drawing connections where we never saw them before. We're looking at urban planning with a different lens. We're looking at 
the role of architecture is not just for elites, but as for everybody, we're mm. thinking of public transport and saying, how do you reduce the amount of money somebody has to spend on public transport? You know, in South Africa, the poorest people, again, I hate that word, but the poorest people are spending sometimes between 40 and 50% of their income on transport. What? Because, that, that high? Yeah, because they've, been, because they've been delocated from places of work. You know, I'm not joking. So you could imagine making those choices where your transport is almost as fundamental a choice as food, mm. but you have to get to work. I mean, it's a big thing in South Africa. We have a high unemployment rate where sometimes people can only afford to take the trip into town for the job interview. And if they don't get it, they don't have enough money to get back home. <sighs> so, so people will, so let's say, let's, and let's say the, the bus is late or the train is late and yep. you miss your appointment by 20 minutes and you get to the place and then, you know, the secretary says, well, can you please come back tomorrow? You're late. That person doesn't have the option of coming back tomorrow. They've literally spent their their week savings uh, to come to the interview. So little things like that, which again, once you put yourself in the seat of that person, you think differently. But not many people even realize they'll just say, "Yeah, I've got twelve job vacancies come in." Even that, in places like South Africa, that can even be bias because you assume yeah. that everybody has equal means to get to you. Hmm. And then there's no wonder why. So many parts of these communities have different, uh, you know, varieties of violence and stress and mental health issues and so on. It's because you're living in a, a system which, which desperately requires design, which goes back mm. to my point about design being a human right. It desperately yeah. requires empathy and, and understanding that the hidden cost of not designing these things is often much greater than the cost of designing them in. Yeah. Can you talk about a project that you're currently working on or working on in the past that has addressed uh, this issue about design as a human right that maybe exemplifies some of the principles of that? Yeah, I, th I think I've got a couple in my portfolio. Although the work that I'm currently doing right now is, is at, at scale. So it's almost kind of beyond architecture now, uh -huh. looking at pol policy formulation and so on. But I will talk about the project of, of Cape Town Station. It's probably one of my, probably will be one of my largest public projects ever. Cape Town Station has a, a weird history going back to the 1860s, almost seen as the sort of departure point for the colonization of Africa. And it went through a number of iterations and revamps and refurbishments. And the major refurbishment happened in the 1960s where the president of South Africa at the time, his name was Furfoot, and he actually really popularized the phrase apartheid. He, when he opened the station, he said, this is a shining example of apartheid and how people should live. So this station had platforms relating to some of the train tracks specifically for black people, others specifically for, let's say, brown people, or people of mixed race, mm. and sort of artisanal class. And then right at the top end, next to the cargo lines, were the tracks that actually went to black people. So the mm. station was literally an aggregator and separator of different races. So it was a metaphor for the apartheid wow. project. And it was very well executed. When I say well, I don't mean I like it, but it was well executed. It was quite disciplined about, about these sorts of separations. So it mm -hmm. wasn't just like, you know, white bench, black bench, as I'm sure we are familiar with in terms of segregation everywhere, but like, like really right down to deciding where the train tracks will stop and end. It, you know, that was tied wow. into it. 
So I was asked to, uh, yeah, it took unbelievable. And, and anyway, I could go on. So I, I was appointed to essentially refurbish it to get it ready for the World Cup in 2010, which is uh, 10 years ago. And it was a fascinating time because the one was that there was a stigma of could Africa host a World Cup like yep, the Olympics? I remember like, that. Are, are we competent enough to, yeah. will we keep the lights on? <laughs> <laughs> Will you be safe and not be stabbed as you go to watch a soccer game? So, so there was that happening in the background. Then I had to deal with this, essentially this apartheid artifact, which had a lot of anger. People remembered being beaten on this station and tortured on it. And so I had one community in my public participation process who were like, no, demolish the whole thing, yeah. get rid of it, start from scratch. And I must say that those voices were actually in the majority hmm. because we, but, you know, I, I took at the time a controversial decision. It was, well, first of all, we don't have the money. Like, we're not a rich country. We don't have the capital to be demolishing and building stations anew. I mean, other countries can. We just don't. That's the, that's the honest truth. And the other part that I was concerned about was this question of erasing history. As painful mm. as it is, I, I do believe that we do need a little bit of a trace of the past yeah. to teach our children about how things used to be. But then what I decided to do in terms of this notion of design as a human right, I did everything within my power to break down all of the instrumentality of that design. So I, I couldn't change the train tracks, but I could certainly change the way the bathrooms work. I could change the mm. way that the concourse worked. There were like only two entrances or three entrances in the building and it was designed for bomb threats and threats of the black populace running in. So it was designed almost in a fortress way. Wow. I totally ripped it apart and I said, well, you know, I want this to be a permeable building where anybody can come in. The informal traders, as we would call them, you might think of them as buskers, as you get like in, in the subway in New York. We had about uh, 362 who had been given no support whatsoever. And it was the largest informal market in the city. I ran a public participation process. I mapped each one of their needs and requirements designed a new market for them, provided structures for them, gave them lighting, gave them benches, gave them a whole level of infrastructure, which they didn't have before. Everybody said it couldn't be done. You're not supposed to interfere with informal traders. That yeah. was a sort of liberal thinking, like leave the traders alone. They yeah. know what they're doing. <clears throat> and I don't believe in liberal laissez-faire policies. So I was quite interventionist, but it was also because I had an aunt who was an informal trader hmm. and she used to like sell herbs by the side of the road into an old age. And, and it just struck me that, you know, she just never had enough money to just buy a table. She wow. was like into her 70s, just using cardboard boxes. So when I was telling the station, I was like, we have to provide infrastructure. Like, yeah, it's so expensive. I'm like, you don't understand. They don't even have a place to hang wow. <laughs> the shirts that they're selling. Like, yeah. just do the, it costs you nothing for them it, 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 it elevates them and gives them dignity in their day-to-day -day life mm. in, in a way that you can't even quantify. Yeah. You're designing so, the conditions for them to thrive. You're not chain, telling them what to do. You're just providing that foundation. A hundred percent. And everybody said, no, they're going to reject it. And, and, and it took off and it went well and it's still going well. Aesthetically, the, you know, the building hasn't been maintained by the client, but this is often a thing. But in terms of those principles of like inclusionary design, yes, I had to think of a building of Dutch tourists coming in and wanting to walk to Cape Town Station. And I had to think about signage that was not bilingual or multilingual, but I had to address, let's call it the world-class concerns that you would expect from any airport or any station mm -hmm. around the uh -huh. world, of course. So I, I did that stuff. But then I also had to address 
the issues of our own place and our own inequality and so on. And yeah, pr- produced a building that I'm still proud of to this day because of its ethics and because it, it really said that, you know, this building is for all of us and that architecture yeah. deserves, you know, I remember having a debate about the tiles. So it's such a mundane thing. So uh, one of the, one of one person in the client body is like, why putting such nice tiles in the concourse? And I said, why? I said, you know, because it's mainly the working class who use the station. Hmm. So that was like, what? So I'm like, first of all, all the more reason for us yeah. to get yeah. tiles for them, A. And B, if you want the so-called upper class to come here, then why should I create a, a, a station for a particular class? I want to create a plaza Ugh. where anybody could come in. You could be in a suit. You could be in your overalls. You could be a skateboarder. You need to be included. Yeah. And to me, that's, I think it's a, a one modest way of trying to say it's that design is a human right. And you're designing dignity for, for a- anyone, regardless of yes. their social class or their racial or race entity. or religion or exactly. We're all human beings. Oh, I can't, um, I can't wait to visit and I'll, I'll post about <laughs> it as, as well when the show gets released. That's so exciting. I could talk to you with you for hours running out of time here. I want to end with, I'm curious to know how South Africa or Cape Town and you are doing during the pandemic and curious to know what your perspective is on us in the U.S. and our response to the pandemic where we've had over 500,000 deaths. We have probably the best healthcare and public health system in the world, but we've been decimated by this novel virus. And, you know, we have enough yeah. vaccines by the end of May to put in every yeah. adult American. And yet we can't even roll out this system and there's yeah. still so many of us dying. So I was curious to know other people's perspectives who don't live in the U S and how you and your country is doing during this pandemic. Well, I, I have a lot of bias because having grown up in New York and for a long part of my life thinking I was American, literally, you know, doing the Pledge of Allegiance day by day at school. Mm-hmm. So when I saw what was happening in the U.S., I honestly was hurt. I'm not exaggerating. It felt like it was my own country, people mm-hmm. dying and so on. So I still feel that way. I think what struck me, though, is also having been to the U.S. and studied Amer- American history is that what, what we're seeing there is really a fundamental dichotomy that goes to the heart of how the Republic was created. When the founding fathers created the, the Constitution, a lot of it was about you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And a lot of it was a repudiation of the sort of collectivism or even control of, of the United Kingdom. So America is really based on this notion of individualism and, and freedom. And the extent that personal agency is enough and that, and that I have the right to make the decision. And this goes for anything, the right to bear arms and so on. And that philosophy worked very well when the country was vast, young, expansive, with lots of room. So the impacts of the individual could be contained. That has changed over the last 50 years. If indeed the last hundred years, as America has become more dense, more, more heterogeneous or, yep. you know, from a cultural perspective. So when I see someone saying, you know, I have the right to not wear a mask, I understand philosophically where that comes from. I was taught that as a kid about your rights and individual, and you can seize the world and do what you can do. America is a place of opportunity. But there's a point at which the rights of the individual cannot be larger than their responsibilities to the collective. 
Mm-hmm. And what's happened, whether it's the really poor, and I, I don't want to get political now, but I still think it was poor, the previous administration's approach to dealing with COVID, because it was, again, no, let the state do their own thing, like, like this sort of laissez-faire, yeah. because that's the philosophy, they'll take care of it. But there's a certain point at which the state has to be the state, yeah. you know, and the citizen has rights, but the citizen is in a compact with the state for the state to perform. And I think that America is struggling to to understand the distinction between the duty of the citizen and the duty of the state mm-hmm. and and why there's a reason that there's one army which controls and not everybody has their own army and why yes a state might have the right to determine its own let's say voting procedure but at the same time there's still a bigger collective so when i look at what's happening with all of those deaths i think it's 500,000 people too many to die for a misplaced sense of individual agency. Mm. I think life is far more important. I think that it, it is still a union, right? It is, yeah. You have states and with great autonomy, but it is still a union. And in many ways, this fight that we saw, we see now is, to me, it's almost like what the civil war is about, mm. when America was struggling between this conception between confederacy and union and and the right to do your own thing versus Lincoln's position that, no, actually, there's a collective picture here. And the collective is more important. Yeah. So, so, so I look at this tragedy. I don't just see it as, oh, poor planning about medicine or this. It's yeah. actually a fundamental cultural schism that is not allowing people to engage with information correctly. Yeah. Because the underlying subtext is this deep-seated narrative of, you know, I have a right to die. I'll, put, I'll take off my mask, leave me alone. But there's so many of us around you that your right is now affecting my rights. Yeah. Like this, you aren't out in the mountains without your mask. I mean, you're in an yeah. airplane, <laughs> right? You're, 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 in, you're, you're in Walmart. You, no, no, no. Your, your rights are limited here. So, so I do feel very sad. And I'm hopeful that America gets back on her feet, both, both in terms of life and loss, but even as a, as a force for rationale and fact-based thinking and empathy. Yeah. There's very little empathy in the equation right now. It's very much a me, me, me. And you can't build a nation without empathy. It's just impossible. It's just, you know. Yeah, you're (laughs) 1,000% accurate in your analysis of our response to the pandemic and the psychology behind it. And how are things going for uh, Cape Town? Yeah, it's South Africa. We have different problems. We are fairly rational. <laughs> we, you know, we don't have time to play with death. I mean, and even when people are being mischievous, they, there's a, there isn't a denial. They know that they're being mischievous and it's in really small amounts. There have been incidents. The problem that we have is just a country with a relatively high capacity in relation to her neighbors, but still relatively low capacity to address all of her needs. Mm-hmm. So the bargaining continues for vaccine. We're getting some in. We're doing quite well, relatively speaking. But overall, South Africa is, is still a, a developing country with moments of first world features. So I, I think that our, our medical fraternity have been absolutely consistent. Mm-hmm. The state has been consistent on message. We have had no political shenanigans around health. You, you, don't have people, you don't have people protesting about wearing masks? That doesn't go on in South Africa? No, not at all. <laughs> There's no time for that. No, you will get a fairly uh, privileged person walking into a supermarket and being cocky about it, but that's like a one-off. This isn't a, a pattern or a stream. Mm. No, the, the country is very... In fact, you'll find across the board, Africans are extremely... I, I, this is such a broad statement, but I, I, I find us extremely pragmatic because... 
life is not abstract for us. It's real. Mm. Like countries live and fall and die. There's coup d'etats. Like living here is visceral. You know, mm. Ebola, AIDS. I mean, these are not, <laughs> yeah. there's no fake news. I mean, there's a lot of people peddling it, but nine out of 10 people are like, this is real and yeah. I'm going to take care of myself. Or if I'm not going to take care of myself, it doesn't mean that it's not real. I'm just being reckless, which I find different with the US where there's a disengagement with reality. 100%. But no, there aren't major protests about masks. There aren't people thinking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're just saying we can't afford the vaccine. We wish we could. Schools are struggling to open up properly. Teachers, yeah. like the normal stuff, who gets the shot first? But there's no fundamental disengagement with truth. We, we don't mm. have that problem. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till we get through this pandemic. And I, I want to visit you. I want, I want to visit the station. And so inspired by your work, uh, McKenna. Thank you for very kind. joining us on Design Lab. It was a real just very honor kind. to speak with you. It was an honor to speak to you and your thorough research and, you know, putting me on the spot and asking, but you're the only the second person to ask me about the astronaut story. You're very good at your research. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love when guests come on and it's a chance for me to be inspired and to learn. And, and you give me a gift, you give the listening audience a gift. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to all the listeners out there, when you catch this, thank you for taking the time to listen to me and, and Bon. That was my conversation with McKenna McKecka. And now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's up, Rob? What's going on? So we use this time to reflect upon what we heard and maybe apply some principles to our lives or make some observations. What stuck out to you in that conversation with McKenna? There was so much good stuff in that conversation from the discussion around design as a human right and then Love I've never that. heard somebody call architecture as the spine of civilization. Uh, that was really enlightening to me. Yeah. And even just think about the pandemic and thinking about how that relates to architecture. You know, we, we touched on a little bit, but we could take a deeper dive on the role of architecture and how that has played out in pandemics and health outcomes. So much to uh, unpack there. And I love getting his analysis of the pathophysiology of the pandemic from a South African perspective. Mm -hmm. So that was just fascinating. McKenna really does a great job at unpacking these topics and making them very understandable. When he started talking about how, you know, what do we look back on when we're looking at old civilizations? We look at their architecture. And I mean, it's kind of obvious when you hear it, but you start thinking about that and it immediately makes real to you the power of architecture, how so much of our world and how it's shaped has everything to do with how we live, right? And that goes into design, that brings in all of these different things. During the pandemic, the communities that have been hit hardest are those communities where there are a lot of essential workers, they have to take public transportation, and especially for those who have to travel long distances, and the only way for them to do that is by train or bus. They've been exposing themselves to the coronavirus because they can't stay at home on Zoom all day like most of us. And where you live, your, your housing situation has really impacted your risk for being infected by the coronavirus. 
Yeah, I really want to dive into the, the case study he discussed about the station that he helped design and all of the learnings and his process going into understanding the various users and really taking into consideration all of these perspectives, irrespective of class, you know, irrespective of whether it's a, a real business or somebody selling things on top of a box, like all being really important elements of that design is really important to understand. Let's take Design Lab on the road after pandemic and fly down to South Africa. Do we have budget on that, man? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. I mean, I want to, I want to, let's bring a camera along. I want to see these places and learn more from them. Rob, every week I tell people to give us five stars if they like it on Apple Podcasts to subscribe to the is podcast it, is there six stars episodes. can we get six no unfortunately not but we do we do have five stars which is very cool but why is that so important because i kind of feel bad saying that all the time it sounds like a broken record but we're not funded this is not we don't have um advertisers on the show that's right and we want you know the messages of our guests to get out to as many people as possible and those algorithms that put those podcasts in front of you are completely generated by star numbers and listener numbers so the more uh, folks give us stars and the more folks who review the more our guests voices will get out into the world and people will hear them yeah again we're not asking for your money but we're asking you to go on apple podcasts and to give us five stars and to leave us a comment that's super helpful that's your way of supporting us and for those out there listening Thank you so much for coming on this ride. Yeah, We're yeah. Be here for a while to come. Woo! Well, this week we have a special treat. The musician who does our music is here today. His name is Manny Houston. Manny Houston, welcome to Design Lab. I uh, appreciate you guys. Thank you. What's up? What's up? What's going on, Manny? Where are you at these days? I am in Harlem, New York, and it's cold. It's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we love the music that you create for Design Lab. It's so good. And for the listening audience, tell us what you're up to these days. Yeah. So right now I have transitioned into trying to become a songwriter for artists and also forming a career in the rap lane for myself. And I say rap lane more so because I, I know I can rap very well, but really this is just me continuing to brand myself as a creative because uh, later on in this year, I'm still supposed to be in Aurora, Illinois doing kinky boots. <laughs> what? Wait, 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 what's that? What's that? Tell us what's going that's on there. That's right, that's right. You disrupted performing arts career thanks to the pandemic. Because you were, you were a Broadway actor, right? Yeah, I was doing an off-Broadway show and the off-Broadway show I was doing was called Forbidden Broadway Next Generation. You can listen to that cast album if you would like. But after that, ended then we had the pandemic start and which closed out a few contracts that i had coming up in the musical theater world so i just kind of shifted into my other talent and i was like let's go full force here and now i'm trying to merge these two worlds as much as possible i want to be the guy that can be kendrick lamar and yeah. also be seen as this great broadway performer and then there's not going to be this uh weird juxtaposition when people think about hip-hop or rap artists and Broadway, you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, I love that combo. And I ask the guests sometimes about this of, what inspires you to continue to be creative on a daily basis? It's so hard to do, especially in a pandemic when we're not seeing as many colleagues. So how do you like get up every day and go, I'm going to create? I, you know, I don't, I don't personally get up every day and say I'm going to create. It's one of those things where if I don't, 
I legit lose my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like somebody explained it to me as there being two planes of existence, the plane that we're on and the one where ideas exist and that creatives pull from all the time and the muses that are there come and whisper in your ear, oh, hey, here's something, you should create mm-hmm. this. And my uncle was explaining it to me as, he was like, you will end up going crazy at some point, Manny, if you allow these muses to keep whispering in your ear because every time they give you an idea, you're like, I'm gonna do it, you know? You gotta so respond, right? I gotta respond, exactly. So I really try to just wake up and just be normal. And, but then I'm like, uh, I need to do this now, you know? That's amazing. You know, I felt that way in my current job, but I'm in healthcare, so there's not as many opportunities to create. So it just went into hibernation for like 15 years, you know? <laughs> and it was like, but now, you know, Rob and I have this unique position where we work in this lab that's really creative and we're doing this podcast. So that's like one of our outlets, especially during the pandemic. So I feel that because if we're not creating, I just, I get grumpy. It's like not working out for me. I just like, I'm not in a good mood. Mm-hmm. And one of the most exciting things still is when we get to work with creative people, like really creative people like yourself. I yeah, really no, look forward to it. It's so that is, that's my goal, Rob, is at the like my big goal. If anybody ever asked me, what are you trying to do? I want to be known as the guy that you call for anything relatively creative at all. So at some point, I know I'm going to be in design lab working with you all. I'm not sure what it's going to be on, but I know I have to be in there at some point because I've listened to everything that you all are creating and all the conversations you're having. And I'm like, I have ideas too. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. I love your Instagram. Your stories are some of the best. They like, I just like, they bring a smile to my face. And where, where can people find you on Instagram? What's your handle again? My Instagram is at the Manny Houston and Houston is H-O-U-S-T-O-N like Texas. Now, tell us about some of these projects. I, I feel like you tease them a little bit on, on your Instagram. Yeah, so with music, it's all about consistency and all about consistently dropping a lot. Mm-hmm. It's like anything right now in the social media world. So first project I have coming out this year is going to be a mixtape called Out of My Black Mind, which kind of was sparked during a depressive episode I was having. Mm-hmm. After that, I'm going to have an, um, an album or EP coming out which is called Miles From Home. I wrote that last year with with a producer from Istanbul. And, uh, and yeah, that, it, was, it was really cool. The whole story behind how we met each other and then mm. created this completely over Zoom is a lot of fun. So that'll be coming out in April. And then the big album that we'll be dropping singles from throughout the year and the release in August is called Young Black Peter Pan, which is going to be a very largely political album, but it's focusing on the mortality of young blacks, where we understand that Mm. Peter Pan is a story that is based around being young forever and never wanting to grow up. Understanding that many young black kids don't have that opportunity. They have to grow up quickly just based off of situations. And so the only way you're able to stay young forever when you're black and living in certain environments is if you die at an early age. So RIP Tamir Rice, you know? Yeah. And what kind of sound, what can we expect from the sound of the album? This sound, it, a lot of people compare me to Kendrick Lamar and Childish Gambino. I uh, see. I yeah. A lot I can, of yeah, jazz, totally. Jazz influences, electronic influences. My, I have a degree in classical piano, so I'm always thinking musically 
in regards mm. to like how large something is going to sound. You're blending all these genres. You have like this classical training and with like hip hop and it's beautiful how you're able to take these different mediums and like mix them together and mm. produces a very unique sound. Where, where can we find these albums? Are they going to be on Spotify? Yep, yep. We'll, we'll be pushing them to every single major digital platform so spotify apple music etc if you follow me you'll know when these things are coming out i've already been teasing some of the songs on soundcloud if you want to look me up where where can people find you on soundcloud the manny houston i'm that is my handle for all things so awesome just look that up you got me the one and only (laughs) thanks man (laughs) once the album drops we're gonna have to have you back i can't wait to hear people responding to it and once it's out in the world hear you talk about it it'll be a great episode the Manny Houston, thank you for joining us on Design Lab. Thank you for your music. Thank you for having me, and thank you, thank you for this platform. Yeah, Rob, play us out. <laughs> Will do. I hope you all enjoy Emmanuel Houston's amazing music every single week on Design Lab. We've got a new track that we debuted this week, and here it is, playing you out on this week of Design Lab with Bonku, Manny Houston. <laughs> <laughs>